Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Peter Simons. He is an alliances professional who guides others into partnerships and alliances. Peter, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you for having me. So I'm excited because I feel like I've found something of a kindred spirit and someone who genuinely understands alliances and partnerships. Could you, first of all, give us a minute on your history, please? Absolutely. And it's good that you kept it to a minute because otherwise I would ramble on forever. (laughs) It's 10 seconds gone. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure you mean my business history that starts more or less in 1985. And since then, I've been in business development sales roles in the um, IT business partner area until I pivoted in somewhere around 2002 and I went into alliances completely. Um, At that time, I worked for IBM and I was assigned with the task to develop the business together with Philips Medical. And as an IBM sales guy, I did what every IBM sales guy will do. And I visited the CIO. And the CIO back then said, well, finish your coffee. I don't want to see you in another year because I have an acquisition to integrate and I'm not waiting to look at other providers. And my general manager said, I don't care how you do it, but the company needs to be developed as a client. And I found a sponsor in the company and uh, developed them as a strategic alliance. So we started to develop solutions together and sell those to the market, to the healthcare market in North America, especially. In 2010, I left IBM and started out on my own as an alliance specialist and coach and helping people create successful alliances and partnerships. I think it was more than a minute, but that's the the brief history. Okay, the overrun is forgiven. So let, let me ask you this. What is the difference between partnerships and alliances and channel? Yeah, channel. You add that channel to that briefly. Uh, That's a good question, uh, Marcus. And for some, there is no difference. For some, there is a difference. What I tend to do normally is look at uh, the broader spectrum. So what I call the collaborative business spectrum. And in that collaborative business spectrum, we look at uh, anything from transactions till M&A and anything in between is is collaboration. Um, And then when we look at channel versus alliances. Channel is really basic about reselling solutions and adding your own solutions to it. Whereas on the other side, strategic alliances are for me, the strategic cooperation between two or more organizations where we aim to achieve a result one of the parties cannot do alone. So we really need each other from that perspective. Now you also asked about the difference between partnerships and alliances. we could say they are the same, but also when you look at alliances, oh, sorry, at channel, you could say that that's also a partnership. I once understood that in the US, uh, the word, the use of the word partnerships uh, has a potential legal connotation to it. So from that perspective, I'm trying to stay away from the word partnership as a really descriptive situation, because it, if companies use that in the wrong way, it can really lead to the wrong results from that perspective. There seems to have been a, a legal lawsuit where one company said, well, we have a partnership, so you need to apply to live up to that partnership. And the other company said, no, we don't have a partnership. And in the end, the judge said, well, it says here that you have a partnership, so you're connected to each other. So that's why I stay away from the word, I try to stay away from the word partnership in when I distinguish the differences in this uh, the business, collaborative business spectrum. 
Okay, so let's talk about strategic alliances firstly. Yes. What makes for a great strategic alliance? Great strategic alliance is a collaboration where two parties work together and really create something new, something that they cannot do uh, each by themselves. And I think there is um, maybe in, in the UK as well, but at least in the Netherlands and some parts of Europe, there is a good example where uh, in at the turn of the century, Philips and Dow Egbert started to work together with the Senseo coffee maker. Now, Senseo coffee maker at that time, everybody was drinking uh, drip filter coffee and single serve coffee hardly existed at the moment in time. Mm-hmm. So Philips created the appliance, the coffee maker, but Dow Egbert created the, the coffee that fitted into this coffee maker. This alliance already exists for over 20 years now. And it's really something that they, where they helped to change the market. Of course, there were other players around as well. So Nespresso was there with a single-serve coffee maker. But Nespresso is not an alliance. Nespresso is, is doing it all themselves or with contractual parties that create the appliance. In Philips and Dow Egbert's situation with Senseo, they both stay independent and they add value to each other. They cannot do it without each other. So did the uh, the parties involved get the Dutch equivalent of a knighthood? Because uh, uh, you guys and your coffee seem to really get on. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know about that, so whether they get the equivalent of knighthood, but we, we like our coffee, absolutely. So my question then is, how do you go about preparing to be a good strategic partner yourself? Well... I almost have to smile because my answer was about to start with it depends. As many answers in strategic alliances start with it depends because it depends on the the type of the organization and the type of the partners. But when we really look back, I would say it starts with, it starts, and I'm hesitating here because it starts on one side with culture, your company's culture, and other side it starts with your strategy. And as you know, I believe uh, famous ex- explanation of some, uh, someone is uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Mm. So it starts with culture. If you have a collaborative culture, you can really work together with your partners in a good way. But then on top of culture, you start with your strategy. You look at your strategy. So what do I want to accomplish in my company that I cannot do alone? What type of partners do I need? And then... Based on that strategy, you set out a direction, a North Star, as my alliance partner always calls it. And to follow that North Star, you look for uh, partners in the market. So who is there that could, could help me here? And then you do a partner assessment. So from there on, you take the whole process that makes that gets you ready to make a good partner. But the culture part continues as you go forward. So you create that partnership. You manage the partnership, you start really working, getting it off the, uh, the, the ground. And with your partner, you continue, look at Philips and, and our Egbert, as I mentioned, in the partnership for 20 years. And it's really the culture and also the executive support, which is essential, that keeps driving this uh, partnership forward. If there is no support from the top, then the partnership will fail sooner or later. I could not agree more. And th- this is why. I think it's really important that a channel chief, when they take on that role, make sure that the CEO is behind him or her 
I remember interviewing J.D. Delosier at 8x8, and a stipulation for him taking the role is the first month the CEO would go on a roadshow with uh, J.D. to meet all the partners. And in two years, they transitioned from 80% direct to 80% channel. And it was instigated because of that executive support. Without it, it would have been impossible. I totally agree. And I see that also with my, uh, my situations in my clients, that executive support makes or breaks the, the, the alliance. I've seen one situation where alliance manager was moving on. That's another important role, by the way. So, and, uh, so the conductor who makes sure that the parties work together appropriately. So the alliance manager was moving on and I said to him, so who's your replacement? And he said, I don't know. I said, have you spoken to your executive sponsor about it? And he said, well, he's moving on in two weeks from now. I never heard about that alliance back anymore. So the support this went on to a different role. The company didn't see the benefit of the alliance anymore and they dismantled it. But on the other hand, I also see with one of my favorite uh, CEOs, I always called him in, in one of my clients, he really drives in that pharmaceutical company a, a collaborative culture. And I experienced it myself when they became a client, the, the negotiation about becoming a client for them, for me, was really collaborative way. It was not, this is our way, how we do it, but this is, it was more, we like to change your, your terms a little bit. Can we discuss it? So it was really from a collaborative perspective. And I see that in, in their, all of their culture and the CEO really talks to his counterparts. And when something is happening in his organization, he picks up the phone and he calls his counterpart and says, hey, we need to talk because our strategy is changing or something is happening that we cannot live up to the promises we made in the past. And vice versa, his partners call him as well. Yeah. And that's very essential. Yeah, well, it, without it, it will all fall apart. But you've touched on something really important, which is the the channel chief is very much a CEO type of role. And the channel manager is uh, like a general manager. They have their own PL, They are responsible for uh, their partners, who they recruit, who they service, who they leave to fall by the wayside, why they recruited those people in the first place, learning, training, coaching, planning, strategizing. It's an incredibly sophisticated position. My question is this. Given that 75% of all products on the face of the planet are sold via partners, why is it that the channel is the ginger-haired, bastard, ugly stepdaughter of direct sales? I think it's, um, it will be because of the reward system that we know. Direct sales is being rewarded based on the sale they do and is often not rewarded based on the sale that the partner does. So they, they, they feel the partner as an intruder and they think, well, we can do it ourselves because we can do it better, we can do it faster. They haven't learned how to collaborate. And then there is a reward system that says, well, if you bring in that deal, here's the money. I've seen that in the past uh, happening a lot in large IT organizations where I worked. There is all, I wouldn't say always, but there is many times there is a, a conflict between direct sales and indirect sales. So I think that's one of the problems. There is a story about um, the CEO of Cisco back in, what was it, 2002, 2003 or so, where he said, well, our company has been a direct company so far. Now we're going to shift to an indirect company. We are going to work 
extensively with the channel. And by the way, you guys are going to be measured on the way you collaborate internally and with our channel. And as a result of that change in strategy, he, the story goes that he lost about 40% of his salespeople. And he said, that's fine. They served their purpose. They were excellent salespeople in the past, but they don't fit within the new Cisco going forward. And I think those bold moves, if you really want to give the, the channel or the alliance people the room they need, then those bold moves are sometimes necessary. I think so. I mean, it, it takes a brave leader to move away from direct sales, which feels like you have control, uh, to giving up control to your partners. And the, a, a lesson that I'm learning as I get older and hopefully a little bit wiser is that anything that you try to control inevitably will come out of control or you will be fiddling with stuff that you shouldn't and you'll overcorrect. And the key is to step back and look at where the problems hit a crossroads together and then look at what you can do to apply little pressure at those points instead of trying to control and correct things later. This is why working in alliances and partnerships is so challenging because now you've got all the moving parts of your business, all the moving parts of your partner's business and their supply chain, and then your, uh, your partner's customers. So it's an incredibly complex role, but you can only do it well if you can take the big picture or see the big picture. If you just focus on the minutiae, you will inevitably end up making adjustments that no one welcomes or don't work. Your thoughts? I, I, yeah, thoughts. I, I immediately, when you talk about control, I had to have to think about two other words, and that's trust and communication. Control, what we see a lot in the, in the market is that um, many large corporates want to, if they team up with another company, they want to don't want to create a strategic alliance, a contractual alliance. They want to create a joint venture because they think that they have more control over a joint venture than over a contract. And the, the best strategic alliances are based on a contract, and then the contract ends up in a drawer and only comes out with, at the moment of a dispute because in, in the management phase, the, the, the teams involved will manage it based on trust and, and a good working relationship and especially communication, a lot of communication. Uh, it's essential for companies to communicate open and transparently when it comes to alliances. And the difficulty there is uh, your alliance partner is a different company. So their culture will be different from your company. They will act differently. You might think, well, we work a lot together. We know each other. So if I say A, you know that you understand that I mean A and don't mean B. But we, we should be careful making those assumptions and um, really communicate and verify. As we always say, you, in alliance, you need to communicate, communicate, and communicate. And if you don't think you have communicated, you need to communicate again. That's essential. And when I see alliances fail or go sour, it's because of lack of communication. And that's, I think communication is, is more important than control. There is, there is no control when we work with other partners. On that note, if you are designing an effective career path or apprenticeship to move into your first real alliances role. 
what are the kind of things that you need to be exposed to? Good question. To do the job. I had a similar question from uh, students at the university in Amsterdam where I provided the guest lecture about strategic alliances. And they really liked it. They wrote a thesis about uh, alliances. And some of them asked me, so I've now graduated, I have my master, so what do I do to to get into alliances? And my advice is, when you look at the, the really good alliance managers, they are experienced business managers. They've seen several parts of the business before they moved into alliances. So they, and they understand how business is, is, is built and, and moving forward. So join a consultancy and see many businesses or build your career in business first, maybe in sales, maybe in business development, but see parts of the business before you move in and get mature in business before you move into alliances. Uh, because you need to be comfortable talking to all levels in the organization. You need to be comfortable overseeing the, the, the type of business you have. You need to be comfortable, if necessary, to escalate and if even necessary, to bypass some of the layers in the organization for the benefit of your alliance. And I would not say for the benefit of your alliance partner, but for the benefit of the alliance that benefits both your partner and your company. Interesting. Okay. because. I'm just in the throes of recruiting our first one or two channel account managers for one of my companies. And looking at the experience uh, column, the only thing I'm genuinely interested in is that they have general management background. And if they've been on the receiving end, so this is a, um, a, a training and coaching tool. And I want someone who's been an operator who's suffered the ignominy of sitting through another death march by PowerPoint or trainer standing up and spouting theory, but not putting it into context. I want somebody who understands the different moving parts in a business. Yeah, I would also look at somebody and and ask, ask them what's driving them. So when are they happy in their role? If they say, well, I'm happy when I close a sale, then it's probably not the right person for a channel role. If they're happy when they close a sale together with a, a partner, or when a partner gets rewarded, then there are the right people to, for the channel role. Well, it's interesting listening to the language of people in the interview process can be incredibly insightful. So are they quite self-serving or are they about serving others? Are they about the outcome or are they about the commission? Are they collaborative or are they a lone wolf? And so listening to all of this subtext is very important in the interview process. Absolutely. Because I want people who have an abundance mentality. They play an infinite game who are thinking, how do we make the pie bigger and keep the game going? Which, by the way, Infinite Game by Simon Sinek is a great book when it comes to it being a, about an infinite game. Uh, absolutely. It's a, it's a great starting point. But I think too many people in business play a finite game. Yes. Where the objective is to win or not to lose. And there is a beginning and an end to the game. And in channel, that just doesn't work. Yeah. But how... how... What, what's causing that? I think when we look at business school, we are taught to play a finite game and not an infinite game. Yeah. I think that's, that's the problem. I think that if we look at the macro picture, 
the way investors are rewarded and how they measure success filters into the companies that they invest in. How leaders are measured and compensated has a knock-on effect on how managers behave. And the managers are stuck in the middle, often without any real training in being a manager. They get the tap on the shoulder and told, Peter, congratulations, you're now the idiot boss. We just fired your predecessor. And that's your runway. I think for a channel role, you need to have done some work in direct sales. You need to have done a lot of work at an operational level. So you understand all the different moving parts and who is affected directly and indirectly by the decision to buy a product or a service. And you need to be somebody who is very collaborative, very good at high on trust. So you give trust, but you're also trustworthy. You need to have a radar for opportunity. You've got to be adaptable, have a low self-orientation. Yeah high level of self-awareness and take action to move things forward. I think those are the must-haves. The ability to synthesize ideas is really key. And you've got to be a really effective coach. Yes. So you are not fresh from business school because that's impossible with, with all that you describe. Yeah. I recognize a lot of those elements. Also, going looking back at my career, I, as I mentioned, I've been in sales and business development. But I have been, well, I would almost say accused a couple of times not being a salesperson, where they said, well, you, you don't seem to be happy with the deal. And no, I'm, I'm not happy with the deal. I was focused on the long-term relationship, and the deal is part of the long-term relationship. Of course, it made, makes me happy, but not that I'm standing on the desk and shouting to the rest of the team, for, hey, I had a deal, like somebody, uh, some people do. That's and, your uh, job. <laughs> getting a deal is, is part yeah. of the job. Yeah. Yeah. But the partnership is what matters. And so, again, absolutely. I think where many organizations go wrong is they're not partner centric, they're self centric. And they see the partner channel, whether it's strategic alliances, a JV, or a reseller, they treat them as if they are an unpaid get out of sales free card. Yeah, and then you also see that when some of those people that think that way move into a channel, they they create a channel and then after one or two months, they say to the channel chief, so where are our results? Why aren't you delivering on the results? They think that a channel is something magic that will deliver results instantly. They don't know or don't realize that it's a long-term game. Well, if we look at our own behavior as buyers, it raises a really interesting question about situational blindness. You've got three types of, four types of opportunity. One is introduced to you by someone with whom you have a close, intimate business relationship. You trust each other, you know each other, you speak freely. And someone you know closely introduces me as somebody who can help you solve a problem they know you have and they know I'm an expert at fixing. Okay, so that's option one. Option two is somebody you have known and has delivered value to you for 6, 12, 18 months. They've not been putting you under any pressure. 
They've provided you with useful insight. And you're now in a position where you're ready to buy something similar to what they offer. The third option is I phone you up and I say, Peter, Fred, who I know you know very well, has recommended I speak to you. I'm an expert in this area. And he said that maybe you could do with some help. And the fourth option is, hi, Peter, my name is Marcus Kauke. I'm calling from XYZ Company. We specialize in this. Do you have a budget? Now, of those four, which is the one you are most likely to purchase from? Most likely from the first one, where a friend says he can help you. Absolutely. Um, But the first one can move into the second one. And the second one is the next most likely. Yes. The warm referral is the third, and cold is the least. Yeah. Yeah? But where does everyone spend their time? They spend Uh, their time on the cold market, and then they get their partners to focus on the cold market. So my question is this. Why would you not go? I can't remember which bank robber it was, but they asked him, why do you rob banks? And he said, because that's where the money is. Why is the emphasis not on developing these strategic alliances? Build the intimacy. And each one of those could be bringing you a dozen or 50 customers a year. And they already have those hot relationships. Somehow companies feel, and maybe it's it's connected again to the reward system, companies feel that they need to extend the market by getting on board new new customers and so focus there. So extend the market in parts of, of extend the pie, basically in parts of the pie that you don't know about yet. Okay, but if, if you're working through strategic alliances, if you imagine a hub and spoke. Yes. So there's you as the vendor in the middle, and at the end of each spoke, there are prospects. Okay? Now, a few of them will be highlighted in green as hot prospects. They're existing customers, okay, where you can cross-sell. Then you've got this warmish market made up of referrals and nurtured pipeline, and then the rest are cold. Okay? now. If you instead inject a strategic alliance partner who already has hot relationships with your cold market, then you sell frictionlessly, borrowing their credibility, and your hand delivered to them. Surely it makes more sense to work with a handful of those and get your 100 deals a year rather than trying to go out with 10,000 and get your 100 deals a year. I agree, but now we're we're basically back at stra- uh, partner strategy. So what is our strategy, and and how does our when you talk about channel, how does our channel chief look and and look at strategy? Is our strategy too clear, and do we know that we need to go at the the warmest parts of our channel, or is our strategy unclear, and do we think we need to to shoot in the world and and see who's there and we've we've seen both we've seen companies who simply go out acquire thousands of 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 partners and some will flourish and some will not we see companies who are very deliberate about their partner channel i've seen channel managers who come into a new role and first are going to look at so how does this channel look who's delivering value who can we develop that deliver more value to us and who are not delivering value and why are they not delivering value do we need to see, say goodbye to this partner? And I think that's essential for a channel chief and to set his strategy or her strategy very clear. Okay. 
So this then raises some interesting challenges at an executive level. What's the conversation that needs to go on within the organization when they're considering setting up strategic alliances for the first time so that you're setting yourself up to succeed instead of fail? When we look at strategic alliances, then I, I'm saying, well, we, we look at something that we cannot do alone and we do that together with an, uh, a partner. So uh, again, to the Senseo model or more recent to the whole uh, COVID vaccine developments where the companies teamed up to quickly develop a vaccine. So the, the, a good example is the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. That's a result of a collaboration between Pfizer and BioNTech. BioNTech has been working on their technology already for many, many years and found an application area together with Pfizer in the whole COVID vaccine. What needs to go on if they want to do set up such a strategic alliance, they first need to realize that they cannot do it alone. I think that's essential. If companies think that they can do it alone, then they will go half-hearted into an alliance. They will not really work together with their partner. And they, really, they need to take it from there and look at the, the opportunity, look at the strategy, and then build the partnership. And as I mentioned before, start to communicate, to communicate, to communicate. Okay. So this begs the question, if you are considering moving into the alliances space, how much market research do you need to do? And does it make sense to do that in the form of some kind of mastermind group in order to understand where your mutual fit is with those strategic alliance partners? That's an interesting approach. I think for smaller companies, it makes sense to do it like that. Uh, because uh, they probably don't have the bandwidth to assign people to, to do it in a, in, in a different way. For larger companies, I would say, really do you, and they often do already the market research. So what's the opportunity out there? They do the research for wh which partners are out there, and they often in-house do the partner assessment. So how does the partner fit with us from a strategic perspective, a cultural perspective, an operational perspective? But it, it makes sense, it still makes sense for smaller companies also to do that partner assessment because you need to know, especially not only if the partner fits with your company, but especially where is the partner different from your company because on those differences, you need to manage the relationship going forward. It's really interesting. At the moment, I'm trying to pull together a number of related providers because I see the complexity of the problems that people have with sales. So if you look at the overall overarching picture, what you've got are a number of symptoms that indicate that there are intrinsic problems. So we have the skill shortage. We have the pillaging of pipeline uh, to make this quarter's quota by ripping opportunities out of next quarter. We have chronic underperformance within sales of SDRs and salespeople not hitting their quota. We have the revolving door in sales, in SDRs, in management. The lack of alignment between marketing, lead generation, sales, customer success, account growth. A failure to, for departments to interact. Now, when you start looking at it and you see it for what it is at a macro level, you start to see these symptoms occurring. And they're indicative of much deeper 
fundamental problems with your business, your operation, your understanding of your customers, your customer journey, your compensation scheme, your measurements, all of these things. And so what I've been trying to do is pull together groups of companies that are specialists at the top and the middle of the funnel, driving permanent behavioral change and improved performance, looking at uh, hiring, compensation, and looking at bringing all of these partners together and bringing them into a company at the right moment and orchestrating all of that. Now, I'd love your take on this because obviously you've got a wealth of experience. What, what advice could you give someone like me trying to bring together all of those uh, partners in order to ensure that the environment is one that fosters collaboration rather than competition? We're working with multiple partners. You are adding an additional complexity to it, an additional layer of complexity. So how do you start? Do you start with by talking to them all at the same time? Or do you start to talk to them one by one? I'm picking them off one by one. Yeah, that would, would be my advice because you want to look at the dynamic of having them all together, but you want to make sure that each one of them will work with your partner, with your company. So I would start it off as, as a one-by-one situation. And from that perspective, build that network out. So start to build a type of ecosystem around it um, where you, in some opportunities you will need all partners, in some opportunities you might need one or two of them, in some opportunities you might need three or four of them. So depending on how the situation is, is uh, how the opportunity is situated. And it's it's really even more than in one-to-one alliances. It's it's communicating to them, building trust with them, and making sure that they're completely aware of the construct of the network. So who else is in the network? Do they know each other? Do they trust each other? And again, the, the trust element is essential here. And I'm I'm keep on coming back to communication, trust, and communication and trust, because that's for me, those are really the, the cornerstones of successful partnerships. That makes a lot of sense. In terms of the frequency of accountability, lesson capture, collaboration, how, how does one judge the frequency with which you need to engage even with infrequent partners? So, so some of my partners I would work with probably on almost every engagement. Others, maybe you know, once or twice a year but they, they would be integral to the client's overall strategy. How do you make sure that you have a, a, an appropriate cadence of activity uh, to make sure that the communication, the familiarity, the trust is at an appropriate level? That will, will be different depending on each partner. So some partners, I would say, you need to talk to them weekly. Some partners, you need to talk to them on a monthly basis. And uh, talking to them, actually really uh, talking and not emailing is important because then you understand what's happening with the partner. You can see each other in the eyes. Mm -hmm. The second best thing, of course, of of meeting in person is meeting something uh, like via Zoom or Teams that we can more or less see each other in the eyes. But we sometimes forget that that part of the communication and send emails. 
And so it depends really on the partner and also a little bit on the feeling that you have with the partner. So the the risk of working with a partner only once or twice a year is that if you don't communicate with them, they forget about you or you forget about them. So you need to, to continue that, that relationship. And there is a, we have a tool for those kind of communications that we call the, the, the cadence of communication, where we really map out. So who do we need to talk to on a weekly basis, monthly basis, quarterly basis? So it's like an operating rhythm. Yes, indeed. And so for, I would say create such a rhythm for every partner. So an operating rhythm for communication. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. And the components of that would be physical touch, virtual touch, email, sequenced content, and what their preferences are with respect to those and whatever else. Yes, and and not only the tools of communications, but also who needs to communicate with them. Are there multiple people in their organizations that are important for you? Are there more to multiple people in your organization that are important for them? So in a large organization, we would say, well, this, the, this, this, this executive sponsor, the CEO needs to talk to the other executive sponsor at least once every six months or once every year. The alliance manager needs to talk to his peer, well, almost weekly. Uh, working teams need to talk to each other on a daily basis. Then again, it depends on the size of the organization. Sometimes... In smaller organizations, the the owner will be the sponsor and will be the the main type of alliance manager at the same time. Okay, so if you're doing that and you've got that cadence built in, how do you then equate that to outcomes? Because that's what the customer is paying for. Yes, so outcomes in the sense of opportunities or outcomes as in sense of we already have closed the deal and we're working together well, what were the results we were hoping for by implementing this alliance and by bringing you as the vendor in so you would need to have the the communication between the sales as well as the salespeople, and they need to jointly work together to to bring in opportunities from a working level. Right. So are we talking about within the vendor organization, within the partner organization, or across the two? Across the two. Okay. Right. And who else needs to be having parallel conversations? The moment we come to delivery, we really need to make sure that, well, it, it depends on the situation. It depends on the client situation, of course. But I would assume that there is one main contractor so the main contractor will assign also a project manager who will be responsible for orchestrating the project and delivering the project to the client. If there are multiple contractors, if every partner is, is dealing with the client at the same time, then it becomes a little bit more complex to manage that. But then, So then you really need to assign an alliance manager or a project manager who will make sure that the project is delivered and that the Different partners are dancing in rhythm together. Okay. So if they're dancing to the same tune, then presumably there has to be a conversation about what the collective desired outcome is. Yes, absolutely. So what does that conversation sound like? That conversation starts already in the beginning. 
where we set what I called the, the North Star together for, for our partnership. So what are we heading for? What are we going to deliver to the market? And that's really about setting the strategy for the, for the collaborative, for the multiple partners that you have involved. And probably you need to fine-tune that for every, every client that you have assigned. Because every solution might differ from, from the other solutions. Because you mentioned that you are looking for to include multiple partners. And some partners you will use at one opportunity, some at other opportunities. So for every opportunity, for every delivery, you need to have that discussion again. So what are we going to deliver? Who is doing what? What are we going to contribute to this partnership? So this person has to be someone who's very good at getting a lot of little agreements in quick succession. So they need to be able to manage finding the common ground. I always call it, it's a type of orchestrator where this person is really orchestrating the different parties together. And it's, it's someone who can oversee the different partners and, and can analyze what's going on in each of the partners and where each of the partners can contribute. And is is a mediator type of person who can bring them together. He's, he's not the, he or she is not the hard sales that's trying to sell and, and trying to convince a partner. But it's it's more a mediation type of role to, to getting get them into the whole construct and make sure that every party gets the, the best part of them in, into this uh, client. So an ability to manage constructive conflict. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And to confront oversights, standards, and behavior, because how they act in one thing reflects on how they act on everything. Yeah. So presumably also then they need to be able to identify people who share their values and their standards. That's also one of the assessments you already do when you select your partners. You will look at their values and their standards. Okay. Because this drives towards trust. Yes. What you're sketching here is a multi-partner alliance. And I would also say, well, if you don't have or have limited experience in creating alliances and working with partners, then start small, start with one partner and build it up from there. Don't start with the with all the partners at the same time. Okay, this is really interesting because when, when uh, Dave and I wrote Making Channel Sales Work, this was absolutely key, that you work with a handful of special forces partners and you take them on slowly treat them as if they're your own. Yeah, you make an interesting comparison, by the way, with using the word of special forces. Also the, in, in the special forces, but also in the, in the Navy and in the Army, they learn to work together and they don't, they don't know how to work together from day one. They, they are taught to learn, to learn together. So they, they get their feet wet and they learn their lessons and they start small. And that's also important in alliances. So start small and learn your lessons. The difference between the conscript who goes through that basic training and special forces is while the conscript learns to work as part of a team, special forces are taught to think independent and interdependently. So everyone has a voice. No one just sits there passively in a briefing ops and uh, just sits there without giving a contribution or without 
uh, voicing any dissent if they disagree with something. So that's how I see partnerships. I see yeah. that 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 as being a true partner. Otherwise, it's just distribution. I, I totally agree. So everybody, every partner will need to contribute, and, and that's their role in the partnership. They are their specialist in their certain area of of the partnership, and then so they are not only there as a as a contractor to do the work. They are also there to contribute in the design of the work. Well, the, this is where I think the channel manager or the alliances manager needs to really have depth because not one of your partners woke up one morning and said, bugger me, I really wish I could sell Acme Inc. shiny widget. (laughs) They just didn't think like that. They woke up one morning and said, you know, I'm sick and tired of working for this asshole. I know I can do it 10 times better. Then they spent three years living from hand to mouth and they made it over the hump and they built up enough customers to have a vague lifestyle. And they've got a range of products and services they want to sell and they want to put their two kids through university and they've got an eye on a big sailing boat because that's their passion. And they've got 14 people on their payroll who they feel duty bound to look after. And those 14 people each has a family of between two and six people. So now they're talking about nearly 70, 80 people being dependent on them. That's an awful lot of pressure. And then you come along and interrupt, or your salesperson does. Yeah. Now, if you don't, if you don't understand to that level, then chances are you're going to find a way of pissing their customer off. Yes. Well, what you also describe is a, is a good example of the story I heard uh, the other day. It's about uh, a UK-based health consultancy that uh, was having, uh, uh, I think, somewhere around seven million pound a year on, in revenue, and they wanted to grow beyond that level. And they said, "Well, we've we've been growing for twenty or thirty percent year over year, but it starts to become more difficult. So we need to look at larger opportunities." and most of the opportunities were uh, government-provided opportunities. And they said, so they said, what tenders are there out there? And what are the larger tenders that we normally could not do alone? And who do we need to, to look after that tender? And so they assembled an, a number of partners, worked together, tried a, a, a just bigger tender than they could do alone for the first time. So they made a small step. They won that tender and grow have grown from that, from the 7 million business into a 20 million business. So that's a good example of a a small, relatively small business that's growing through partnerships and really bringing together uh, the different skills from different partners to be able to to grow the company where they looked at. So what's their culture? What's their solution? What talent do they have that we don't have? And are we not competing with each other? Are we complementary? So is one plus one equals three? Well, um, I'm minded of one of the best examples, which is Simon Severino. So I believe he's only got eight employees. And last year, through his strategic alliances, he added over 5,000 customers to his business. Now, you could not do that. I mean, to add 5,000 customers would probably take... 20, 30 salespeople, maybe more. Yeah. And 
they'd have to be good salespeople, which makes that even less likely. Very attractive to attract those salespeople anyway. Yeah. But through a really clever methodology around strategic alliances, he's added over 5,000 customers, and they range between two and 21,000 apiece. Now, that's with this team of eight. Now, it, it's just crazy that so little attention is paid to this end of the equation. Now, I get why the people don't do it. Because they're in a hurry. And yes, but the hurry means sh sh short-term focus instead of long-term focus. Absolutely. So this then raises the question for the alliances and partnerships to be uh, to have a seat at the main table. What needs? What's the conversation that we need to to start that will grab the attention of the board? And become like one one of those little brain worms that they can't quite get rid of. Yeah, well, we, we need to realize that how the board is being measured. So we need to, to tap into those elements. And so what's driving them? And, and most likely it's it's about showing them how they can grow the company with lower costs on a higher speed with the use of alliances and partnerships rather than they can alone. I think that's the main message. But then if they still feel... Well, we need to focus on this quarter. We need to be measured this quarter, and it will be a challenge. And it's it's not strategic alliances. Then it's really about operational opportunity driven. So I I think I've I think I've got the rough direction. I still need help formulating it. But this is the difference between growth and scale. Growth to double your revenue, you have to double your headcount, double the spam double your dials, double your conversations, double your meetings, double your demos, double your proposals and quotes. And that's expensive brute force. Yes. How do we shift the narrative from that? How do we help them make the intellectual shortcut from that to well, what if we could get that double the growth, double the growth, double the growth without any additional headcount? What would we have to do? How, how do we get that conversation going in the boardroom? And what, what do we need to do to create the interim steps? So when we ask that question, it's not too big a leap. Well, the interim steps are in, in start small, grow fast. Start small with one or few alliances. From a board perspective, I would ask them a lot of questions about their growth plans. I would not necessarily tell them how to do things. So ask them a lot of questions and ask them a questions, uh, and, and directive questions also, but that shows them that they can team up with a partner because in the end, they need to adopt the idea as, it, as if it was their own idea. My advice for, to them would be to assign someone who knows about alliances and partnerships and who can set the strategy. I've seen it happen, and, and, and again, we've seen the, uh, I mentioned the example of Philips. Uh, I've seen it happen in the late 90s, early 2000 with Philips, where they had one board member who saw the benefit of alliances and saw that Senseo they created together with Dow Egberts had more opportunities. They could create more Senseos with other companies and grow faster. The, the coffee business of Philips was just a part of, a small part of the, the overall business. 
in the end, the coffee business grew into a separate business unit thanks to the partnership they had with Dow Egberts. So there was one board member who saw that we, we can grow this in different ways. And they hired uh, two people to set the alliance strategy for overall Philips. And of course, they learned their lessons sometimes in the hard way. So they had different alliance models that didn't work in the past and then created new alliance models. But that board member also saw that this is not a, a, a quick win scenario. It's a long-term game. So they created more alliances and they created the, the increased department going forward. And so that's the, that's the model you would like to apply with your customers as well. So And, and in, talk to the boardroom as well. And I think so, ask them questions, make sure that they adopt the idea from their own perspective, but um, use examples, show them how it could work, how it worked for other companies and, and translate that, how it can work to, for them. I'm pulling together those stories for my next book on strategic alliances. I'd be really grateful if we can spend a little bit of time maybe on another call, uh, capturing those stories, because w- without them, it doesn't carry the same social proof. And I'd like to get more than just my stories. Uh, happy to provide you with some stories. Of, of course, the, the Philips story is uh, widely documented, so I don't violate any NDAs there. And in other stories, I need to make it anonymous to not violate yeah, any that's NDAs. Okay. Look, we've come to the top of the hour, sadly, because I could talk to you for hours. Tell me this. What's the one blind spot that you see people tripping over it's the easiness of they think well and and it it's it happened a lot of times and it's still happening a lot of times ceos meet each other like each other and say well our two companies are going to work together and then they come back after the weekend <laughs> and they say to someone in the uh, in the organization i just met so and so and we agreed that our two companies are going to work together and by the way it's your job to make it work that's the, the the worst start of an alliance. And that's the, the CEOs really forget about the fact that there needs to be more work done than simply saying, I like you, we're going to work together. Right. Okay. That's another episode on its own. <laughs> so um, we will t- definitely schedule that. Okay. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Peter, age 23, when you were invincible, you knew everything. And you'd live forever. Yeah. What one bit of advice would you whisper in his ear that he'd have probably have ignored? Well, there are two parts of advice here. And one is probably for every 23-year-old and not just Peter. And one, and that is, don't be so stubborn. You don't know it all. <laughs> and the second one. Yes, I can do. <laughs> <laughs> the second one that's related to it is, is work with a mentor as soon as you can. Don't wait until you are 40 years old and we'll start to work with a mentor right now. There are a lot of people out there who have been there, seen them, seen it, done it, and can provide you guidance and advice that allows you to grow faster than you can do on your own. Good, very good advice. Okay, what would you recommend people read? And I know the library on alliances is not very strong, but is there anything that you'd recommend people read? There are a couple of books I would recommend people read. Um, one of them is Remix Strategy by uh, Ben Gomez-Cazeras. It's uh, really about uh, creating alliances and, and creating constellations of companies, as he calls it. And that was Ben Gomez? Ben Gomez, yes. Okay. Another book is uh, 
strategic alliances, sorry, strategic alliance management by Brian Chemkes, T-J-E-M-K-E-S. Brian is a professor at the FIU University in Amsterdam, and he has written an excellent book, but uh, it's an academical book. And I always use it as a kind of manual. I, it's not the type of book that you start to read at, um, just before you're going to bed. No. Well, unless you want to sleep. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I used to use inorganic chemistry books for that and economics. They were my sleeping pills. Excellent. Peter, how can people get hold of you? Well, the easiest way is to visit my website, petersimons.com. And the second easiest way, or maybe for some people it might be easier, is to connect with me on LinkedIn. Okay, excellent. Peter Simons, thank you. Thank you very much, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And tag someone who's considering alliances. There was a wealth of useful information and insight uh, here. And if you want to get in touch with me, Marcus at last-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.